Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 3, Creative Conversations with Bold Humans. This episode is brought to you by DK, that's me, and also produced by the wonderful Jono over in Empire Films and hosted by the equally superb Alex at X Equals. In this episode, we chatted to Raki Syed, who's a digital artist, a native of the US, but now lives in New Zealand, very much calls it home, and a local boy, Gabe Davidson. He's a cocoa bean hunter and the founder, co-founder of the Wellington Chocolate Factory. We jump into so many topics in this one, from animation to VR, from chocolate making to confectionery, and what's the difference between cocoa beans, coffee, filmmaking, lighting, so on and so forth, why it's amazing to be in New Zealand, Black Lives Matter, race and career things. It's just a plethora of wonderful things for your ears and the brain. Thank you for giving up your time and enjoy Creative Welly episode three. Yeah, so three, three little ones, uh, 18 months, four and five. And I taught Jimmy, the five-year-old, his very first joke the other day. As a fly came in the house and I said, oh, have you, do you know how to, do you know any jokes? He said, no, he didn't really get the concept of telling a joke. So I said, well, what do you call a fly with no wings? <laughs> Sorry, I've already run in you know the, the head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah a I've walk. Yeah. <laughs> so it took him a lot of time to get it, get the timing right. But I think he's nailed his first, first joke, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. That's sweet. I always <laughs> remember my, one of my favorite ones from years ago, similar, what do you call a deer with no legs? Yes. No, deal with no eyes. No idea. And then you can follow it up. What's called deal with no eyes and no legs? Still no idea. <laughs> Thank you. Right, good night. Yeah, I think right. we just did an Thank you. But anyway, so that's just to set the, the scene. The cognitive load of that joke. I know. You, it kind of takes you somewhere you never knew. Right? So weird. So you two don't know each other, which I like. Because we just had an interview no, here no. and people knew each other quite well, which is kind of fun, a little bit as equally. So it's fun now because I get to ask you about your histories and we both discover, you know, kind of a little bit deeper, even though I know a lot about your history because we're good mates and we're becoming friends. So that's lovely. So I want to start with you, if that's all right. Like, how did you become what you're doing now? Oh What's gosh. your journey? I know it's a big, juicy <laughs> question, but that's what we're here for. Um, I actually, I was talking to a friend about this recently that there are some people who decided very early on that they were going to do a thing and then they did it. Mm. And I'm one of those people, but I, I didn't have good reason to make those decisions. Like, so I decided when I was 12 or 13 years old that I really loved animation and I wanted to make, wanted to be an animator and then I wanted to be a filmmaker. And I did that ever since then. Like I did that in junior high, I did that in high school, then I went to film school, then I became a visual effects artist, now I make extended reality. So that is weird. Um, I had zero reason or information to make that decision when I was 12 because it was totally outside my worldview. Like everyone, I come from a Pakistani family, it was like, are you going to be a doctor? Are you going to be a lawyer? Um, you could also be an engineer if you want to branch out. Right. That's the radical rebel. <laughs> yeah, my dad approach. was an engineer. Right. So, but if you're not doing any of those things, then we're questioning your choices in life. Because it's just like, you know, that's the old school. Like those, are the, those were the safe right. things to do. And especially if you were from an Asian country and you wanted to immigrate, you had to have a useful career that would help you get a visa and make mm-hmm. you a productive member of 
Western society. <laughs> so that's where that thinking comes from. And deciding to be an artist was like outside that for sure. So did you feel pressure because of that then? Or pressure from a perspective, I'm not going down the route my parents or my, there's an expectation right? And yeah. you went a different way. There was, did they support, did they They encourage? were totally supportive, which okay. was weird. Um, I think because they didn't know what I was doing. Like nobody knew, so they couldn't question it very hard. Mm. Um, they were like, that sounds like kind of a weird, cool idea. We don't know anything about it, so good luck with that. <laughs> Um, and I got really lucky because I went to this high school that had this teacher who was this amazing person who basically it was a hardcore hippie who was a union organizer in the 60s, went to um, Woodstock, like civil rights movement, all that stuff. And then he decided he was going to become an animation teacher in a public high school, in the high school that I happened to go to. And he taught us how to be how to do animation and he had this amazing ability to bring people into the program so like mm -hmm. chuck jones came to visit us mm -hmm. um, kathleen wow. kennedy came to our open house um, the people that made the simpsons would come and do portfolio reviews henry selick uh, the guys who animated on nightmare before christmas like all these amazing animators and creative people that were working in southern california would come to our high school and just like look at our films and give us advice so very early on, this was an entry into, into like the world of Hollywood and storytelling that kind of wasn't accurate. It was like not a closed club. It was this open public school system where people just came to help you and teach you how to be an artist and tell a story. Um, so I think that's the thing that I took forward with me is that, well, I could do this. I don't have any reason to think I could do this. I don't know anyone. I don't have any understanding of this uh, industry, but I want to be an artist and I want to make cool things. So, and this teacher, Dave Master, who's kind of a legend in Southern California and in, in the States, I guess, for people that know about animation, his whole thing was like, because he was a radical person, right. he was like, I'm just going to teach kids that don't know anything about art how to make it in Hollywood, and that's a radical idea. And he, he did that. What a gift to have someone who could create the, the to cross the chasm yeah. between those industries, because I can imagine they're quite closed industries to get into. Yeah, and I think that this is what, what I have grown to respect over the years, especially right now with this moment that we're in, which is like everyone wants to support diverse voices, and they're like, how do we support diverse voices? And it's... I think there's a lot of um, infrastructure that needs to be overhauled, but it's also like, just do it. Just break, right. you know, don't look at it as a hierarchy, like the class-based system that it has always been. Instead, you have to let the young folks do things in new ways and experiment and have a sandbox, and then they just take that. It's like inceptioning an idea. And I think that's what like happened to me with this teacher, Dave Master, that he inceptioned this idea into really young people. Like, you could tell a story. You could do whatever you want. Um, and then we just did, and we didn't listen to anyone that said otherwise, because this idea had been um, revealed to us so early on. But you're also being quite humble there, because what you then went on to do. In terms of, you look at your IMDb, <laughs> you know that classic where you go and you look at actors and stuff. They also do it for the production side of things. And I was going through it and it's quite impressive, all the films you've worked on. And you'll probably say, oh, I'm lucky or whatever, but it's kind of cool, the stuff that you've worked on. And you started in Disney, right? 
Yeah. It's just your first yeah. proper grown-up. Yeah, that place. was my first real job. <laughs> and again, like, I didn't know what I was this doing. real job at Disney, right? Yeah. Boom. <laughs> Working on, like, Bolt and things like that. But I think that, again, like, timing, and I was lucky because... So I went to USC, which is one of the more well-known film schools in the States, and that does open doors, even if you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> They're like, oh, you went to USC. You must sort of know what you're doing. And Disney was the kind of studio that they really want to... Um, there's a, it's, it's structured in its own way, and so they want to recruit from schools that they believe are setting young people up to be able to, I don't know, work within the system in a certain way. So they gave me a job as an assistant technical director, and I really didn't know anything. Like I always had, I've always had this fear, which I've only really started to let go of recently, which is that I'm not a technical person, um, and that I. I don't know how to do things, and I don't know how to do them well, and I'm just like hiding it. <laughs> like people are gonna figure this out. So I had to learn how to code, I had to learn how to do, because visual effects is su super technical. Like that's why a lot of people with computer science degrees go into it, because they understand computers and they understand code. So I had to learn how to make myself useful to the process. But it was they were they were a very nurturing organization at that time, um, and. Yeah, so that just happened for a few years. Then you went on to Weta, right? Yeah, and again, I feel like I sort of like <laughs> bumbled my way into this job. But Weta Digital, because just for clarification, is a couple yeah. of Wetas, right? Yeah. And that side. And again, the, the films you worked on there, like obviously The Hobbits and things like that, but The Avatar and, and, and so on and so forth. But again, in the technical digital effects side of things, right? Yeah, well, so Weta was different in that the world of feature animation has always been like very much about art, the art experience being first and foremost. So when I was at Disney, it was like there were these artists, um, and there, that was the title, like lighting artist, animation artist, and then there was the technical director people who supported the artists. And that, initially that was my role. I was a technical person that supported the artist, and the artist was like on a pedestal, you know, they like, they add their flourishes, they, they do artistic things. And then the technical people are respected, but your job is to support that person. And when I came to Weta, they're also super technical, but they're like, well, we just expect that you know the art. You have to do both. Wow. Um, and that was scary because I was like, they're going to figure out that I don't know how to do that. Um, <laughs> do you do any sort of art outside of that, um, that world? Like uh, yourself, are you an artist? Well, I, I've struggled with that. So I went to art school, you know, so I went to, my undergrad at USC was film theory because I really wanted to understand the history of cinema. And then I went and did an MFA in animation and digital arts, which is like a proper art degree. It was like three years it's in fine art, art right? Yeah. As well. So. It's, a, it's a master of fine arts, <laughs> whatever yeah. that means. So, but it was all with um, using computer graphics. So like, this is a thing that I've started to think about recently is that my specialty is as a lighter. So, you know, like this light, this is actually a really good light <laughs> because it's set above, like lighting someone from the top means you get nice shape. And it's easy because we can move around wherever we want and the light stays consistent, doesn't have to be reset up. The worst light in the world is like a really bright light in front of your face, it just makes you look flat. It's not flattering. So, I'm a lighter, um, and that's my specialty. <laughs> but it's taken me a long time to understand that light is a material, and this is the material that I work with. Yeah, I would never think about it as a 
a thing to play with or even to create and mm -hmm. then be, you talked about creative and be artistic in a different form, but maybe seeing light as art. That's yeah. kind of trippy. Yeah. And what I talk about in my class when I teach lighting to students is that we actually have to go pretty far back, but we go as far back as the Renaissance and we look at the Renaissance paintings, Rembrandt in particular, right. figured out how to light human faces in a way that we have not deviated from since. So if you start watching Planet of the Apes, Avatar, Hobbit, even classical Hollywood cinema, you're going to start to see the Rembrandt style of lighting over and over and over again. And once you know how to do that, that's it. Like, that's a special sauce. Which is? <laughs> go on, give us a secret sauce. I want to kind <laughs> Just of... set up the Rembrandt light, which is like, you go and look at all of Rembrandt's portraits. Right. It's a man or a woman sitting almost like three-quarter like this, um, glancing a little bit forward, so then you, you don't get a flat plane, you get shapes. And then the light will be on one side, and it'll be at the specific location where you get one side of the face lit, and then there's a triangle oh, on the on, on the on the yeah. uh, sh a shadow side of the face. This is just super flattering. It's like the perfect way to light the face because you get the eye highlights, so you get like reflections in the eyes. You get this light, which shows you the other side of the face, and then this, which is quite soft. Right. So is every director. Do they say, hey, that's not the Rembrandt light? Is that the, I don't know if they would call it that. I'm, I think cinematographers would. Sure. And all beauty lighting shots, like the, the beauty moments in the films, uh -huh. just look for it. The close-ups or the medium close-ups. It's just like, you just, you, like you, can't un, you can't unsee it. That's good. <laughs> a secret right there. Yeah, I feel like yeah. you've been given an insight tip. <laughs> oh, new world. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll think about that every time I <laughs> see it for the rest of my life. Yeah. Now I know the triangle, the, yes, and when I'm going to look it up. Maybe you can, t you can probably talk more about this, but when I go into retail spaces, I want to feel this quality of light because then that makes me want to be in a place. And I remember in California many years ago, they started doing this, um, and you see it in grocery stores too, like the high-end grocery stores, when you go into the produce section, the lighting is soft and it's all very ambient from the top. Um, whereas like you go into a convenience store, it's fluorescent, yeah. it's hideous, Gosh. it's unflattering, which is a signal you're not supposed to stay in there. You don't feel sure. like you want to stay in there. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, do you, what is the feeling that you want when people come into the chocolate store or factory and how do you get them to retain that? Well, we're about to do a refit, uh, a refresh, um, not a complete refit. And um, I was wondering, <clears throat> for chocolate, if you'd like to come and spend half an hour <laughs> helping us <laughs> decide... Turn chocolate into Rembrandt. Yeah. I'd love to. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you're open to that, that'd, yeah. be, that'd be amazing. That would um, be amazing for me too. With this new refresh, we would like it to be uh, a little bit whimsical. Mm -hmm. um, maybe highlight some of the artwork on the wrappers that we have, so highlighting the bars that are on the shelf in a different way. Uh, a little bit magical and, and, and have a, an element of fun for the kids. What I think with uh, calling ourselves the Wellington Chocolate Factory is I sort of feel when kids come in with an expectation it, it, and it's sort of high-end chocolate, we're talking about single origin and the different ways to sort of like wine. Um, I feel like 
they're a little bit disappointed and I want to create a little bit of fun and whimsy in there for them as well, um, which I think is something we can work on. That's fascinating because I've known you since that, the first week it opened and I walked in and he was behind the, the, the counter with Rochelle, the co-founder, yeah. working there. There was only two people working there, just him and the co-founder at that point, right? Yeah, there's just two of us. And now, since I've known you, that was 2013? Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yep. And you've had kids now, and now you're thinking through that kid's lens. Yeah, and I've been shamelessly using them in, in uh, video <laughs> and all sorts of stuff, you know. And Child labor. I, I know, and advocating you know, ethical chocolate, but here I am. <laughs> well, you just did a big uh, competition, didn't you, about yeah. designing a kid's thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a really fun. So we, we've uh, we brought on board a, a PR company. Um, which we'd never done before. Um, so they came up with this great idea to have a competition. And the competition is anyone from year five to 13, ages five to 13, can dream up their ultimate chocolate bar and make the wrapper to match it, whatever flavor they like, whether it's in the chocolate itself, sprinkled on the back, and then they do an artwork that sort of tells a story about what the chocolate is, and they submit that, and the uh, the winner gets them and their family get flights and a fancy hotel for a weekend, um, trips to Zealandia and the zoo, and uh, they get to come to the chocolate factory, have a tour, and wrap the first bar because we'll make that bar for the supermarket shelves. So they get to wrap the first bar that comes off the line. And you're going to make yeah. that bar for them. And we're going to we're going to make it. And I think that's just such great kudos in the playground. You know, if you've got your own chocolate bar. Oh my God, you're Charlie. It's so cool. <laughs> you are Charlie. You're living the dream, right? Of the chocolate. You're going to be factory. Charlie, yeah. He's Willie. Yeah, we're a few. He's Willie Wong. Yeah, you're going to create a Charlie. Yeah, a little bit, say. <laughs> so that's what we need to, um, and there were a few kids called Charlie. And I, was, I saw the name come up and I was like, please be awesome, because how yeah. cool would that be <laughs> if we could have an actual Charlie, but we'll see. So we've got yeah. uh, a few, um, a couple of celebrity chefs judging, and um, so we'll have this panel of judges and art judges. Uh, so we did a series of videos explaining what we were looking for, and on one of those videos, Gina Keel, who does a lot of our art, uh, went into the process of what she thinks about when she's designing chocolate bar, which mm -hmm. she may be open and say eating. Yeah. Um, why she chose tigers and mm -hmm. why she chose the colours and things like that. Um, so yeah, there's a panel of judges, uh, Seven Sharper covering this whole thing, which is great. Yeah. Um, so it's been fantastic PR, and we were expecting maybe you know just two, three, a few hundred submissions we've had nearly 2000 and it's my <laughs> sole job over the last few days people have had time to put these submissions they together. have and it's perfect <laughs> timing for the lockdown and everything yeah, so we've been running for yeah. a while and and that's what the pr company thought it's like this is a really good thing while kids have time on their hands but then we didn't expect whole schools will have a teacher mm. who i think oh there's just one more email but it's actually 60 entries with one <laughs> from um different schools around New Zealand so it just sort of blew up and it's a lot of entries to go through and it's really hard yeah, good luck to, um, <laughs> uh, to to decide. Could there be an exhibit 
with most of the submissions. That's a great idea. You know, so like here's the winner, but then here's everyone and all of this. Like, that would look so cool on a giant wall somehow. Or even right? a digital one. Yeah. Where it's all scanned in and yeah. you just press refresh, you get a random entry, you know, pop up. So you see like whomever, but yeah. I, I love they, seeing they things as be... like massive collections. Yeah. That would be beautiful. Were you thinking sort of a physical, like a wall? Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought that. I did think we should somehow put them up on our website because mm. these kids have put so much effort in yeah. and we've had you know videos of the kids trying to sell the idea as to oh why gosh, their so chocolate cute. bar should be the one and it's definitely <laughs> the best flavor in the world and they made tiktok entries like probably just like really doing a lot <laughs> yeah but um a physical even for a period of time even in the chocolate factory yeah. having uh, if we can i'm thinking the new uh was it toy <laughs> toy, toy art uh, at um, the Papa. Oh, the new yeah. art. Space. Very high end. Why not? Very, very. Go for it. Why not? They I mean, do you've have got... that gallery where they do the kaleidoscope children's stuff, right? Kid, yes. kid art. Upstairs, There's a whole yeah. kid art area. I'm going to look into that. It's a great idea. <laughs> Think big, eh? Yeah. Why not? And, and, and to give, give these kids, because they put, yeah, it's yeah, amazing the amount of mm. effort in. And I thought, well, it's only going to go down to Final ten, uh, final ten, and then there's a goes out to the public, the 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 people's choice, and then it goes down to five, and then we make those five bars, and then we'll send them back to the kids, and then there's a first, second, and third prize from there. Uh, but there are a couple of thousand kids who've yeah done this. It would be so nice to see. I mean, whoever wins, like that's. The intensity of that process is like harder than anything I've ever submitted for, right? Like wow, 2,000 cool. entries. Yeah, it's like the... And then a series of judges and panels and like, wow. It's a lovely story to be able to tell, like you say, if you win it. Think yeah. about the kudos you get yeah. for that. And good on you for taking that bold step, throwing it out. And you're going to have some fun trying to make a elephant flavored chocolate bar. Your kids aren't allowed to. Are they allowed to? No, no, no they're not allowed to. Yeah. You're welcome to try some chocolate. I've had this one. Okay. I, like, I like this one. Um, and, oh, sorry. No, I was yeah. just going to kind of uh, make the point, how many people do we, you know, in, in, in life actually do build a business around chocolate and things like that and own a chocolate factory like you do. And I wanted to get your kind of origin story to get into sure. running Wellington Chocolate Factory. Sure. Well, I mean, I, some of what you were talking about with your uh, always knowing what you wanted to do, um, I feel really lucky to have felt a little bit the same um, where I was about 17. I mean, originally I wanted to be a jazz musician, so I left school early. School wasn't working for me. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and I had you know, come from a long line of uh, jazz musician family. Um, so they were sympathetic and they allowed me, if I studied hard and got into the Wellington Music Conservatorium, study jazz and, and got my qualification there, then I could leave school early. And then I came out of the conservatorium and trying to make a living in Wellington playing jazz is not as easy as I had hoped. Trying to make a living anywhere <laughs> playing jazz probably. I know, yeah. yes, particularly. <laughs> and, um, so I still play music, 
uh, with people that I've known since my teens and who also did the course. Uh, but then obviously I had to supplement that with hospitality because um, that seemed like an obvious choice and just fell in love with the whole industry and particularly coffee uh, and beans and roasting and espresso bars and creating a like a like a little uh, a moment for people in an espresso bar that has the r cool music that they wouldn't expect maybe some some fit out elements that are kind of kind of cool and my dream was to go to Melbourne and open up little laneway yeah, takeaway coffee yeah. bars and I didn't really know what I was doing business wise but went over with a backpack and eight hundred dollars and there was a backpackers called Coffee Palace in St Kilda and uh, I thought well that's obviously where I'm going to start <laughs> <laughs> and then worked through and uh, maxed out a few credit cards and got a little <laughs> hole in the wall coffee shop in a laneway which was just this I was walking looking for inspiration I guess for a, a takeaway espresso bar because at the time back in two, early 2000s there wasn't a lot of high quality takeaway espresso coffee in Melbourne and, and, and Wellington was really sort of leading the third wave sort of coffee scene, mm. which... Uh, what was the first and second wave? <laughs> Just out of curiosity. Well, uh, um, that's a good question. So third wave is, um, is, is when you get really nerdy, like into like weighing your uh, extractions and timing your extractions and all of that sort of stuff. And I guess that your 80s cappuccino was the second wave and the first wave was pretty pre uh, I, I, um, pre-espresso machine. Like we got some beans. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not so clued up on exactly what second and first wave were. Mm. But, um, but I did get uh, jump on that third wave and and want to create a really good uh, espresso coffee business in Melbourne. Um, so yeah, that's where my love of beans started, and. I then opened a few shops and a coffee roastery. Um, the first shop was actually an old hosiery shop that sold like seconds and hosiery that nobody wanted. Yeah. Like, um, bad, and bad ties, like Homer Simpson ties and piano ties and <laughs> bras and stuff hanging like that nobody wanted, the wrong size things. And, um, and this, this woman was in this laneway and I thought that's a really good location. And can we just have your front window and we'll put some doors in like this and we'll just and we'll pay you $200 a week for rent mm. and it will help to bring people to your store as well. And so she said, yeah, and that's the only way we could do it in the CBD is this incredibly low rent and uh, ANZ building was right next to us and we started with 30 cups on our first day. We sold 30 cups, which we were excited and then we sold a few hundred cups after a while and then we opened a few more stores and a coffee roastery and I was starting to get interested in uh, in social enterprise which is a term I just heard but didn't really know what it meant. So I had always thought that you can create a business and why wouldn't you if you have the opportunity to create a business that also does good and 
as the business grows, it can do more good. And that's sort of always what I thought in my sort of late 20s when I started the business. And then that term came along and I thought, oh, well, maybe that's what we are. So we uh, eventually sold to an organisation in Sydney called Fair Business. And Fair Business was uh, started by a philanthropist who, from the UK who really believed in buying businesses and helping them who are already kind of like thinking along those lines but not really having the infrastructure behind them to, 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 to become officially in a, a social enterprise. So he ended up buying the business. We had five shops and a roastery at that stage. And, um, and it, was, it was great to learn more about how to do business ethically mm. and um, so that that was my first sort of official entry into ethical business and it, it's still going today um, uh, it's been changed they've changed the name but I can still go back to Melbourne and see the shops and they create employment for at-risk youth and uh, back in the day we used to deliver all our coffee to our own shops and other cafes on the back of a bicycle. So that was something that was always interesting for me mm. to, to be involved with. And then I sort of felt like I came to the end of my third wave. I'd been doing it for coffee for, I don't know, uh, a long time since the early 2000s. So, and I felt like I'd done everything that I set out to do in Melbourne. And then the craft chocolate scene was happening. So people who take, go to Origin to find cocoa beans and then roast them and actually make them on a small scale, whereas mm. previously chocolate had just been made by a handful of big corporations who use basically one type of cocoa bean, uh, the Forestero, which is not particularly tasty, so they have to over roast it and add flavour and do all the stuff and it's not particularly ethical either so um, it's only in the last wee while that uh, companies have started supporting us with machinery to make chocolate on a small scale, small batch chocolate. Right. Before that we had to use cobbled together equipment to, to remove the husks and to do this that and the other and um, but now it's a, it's a, it's a full-on industry craft chocolate, bean to bar craft chocolate so get back to your question um, <laughs> I, 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 I went from one bean to another oh, bean yes. yeah. and uh, yeah and I always sort of knew that I wanted to be uh, an entrepreneur and do and it took me a while to to uh, allow myself the idea that that is a creative pursuit that uh, the business can be creative mm -hmm. and, and I get a lot of creative outlet from that. Mm -hmm. But it's something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with is we don't really want to be labelled a businessman because I never even went to business school. <laughs> but I do like the idea of thinking of my work as creative. I mean, I get a buzz out of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting creative people I work with mm -hmm. as well. And also what you've created is a, an experience at the factory. Like even day one when you walked in, there was something different there and you talked about ambiance with lighting. The way you decked out that place was a little bit different than most here 
in, in uh, Wellington. And then the product itself, laced with the art that you get, uh, the local artists to do. You still got that outreach to the community, the stuff that you do and the, the limited run bars. But then add to that then the origin and finding ethically sourced beans and then paying people for what they're worth. And I always remember something you told me early on, which is most people eat chocolate. They don't eat chocolate, they eat confectionery. They don't eat chocolate because confectionery is just sugar and flavor and a bit of chocolate in, whereas we make chocolate. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and we're chocolate makers, not chocolatiers, so we don't get mm. bulk chocolate in and melt it down as a factory and, and make things from that. We're actually chocolate makers, so that's the difference. We right? make it from the bean. Yeah, from the bean. Yeah, from from the bean there. Um, yeah. Are either of you familiar with? Um, the one of those one of the co-founders of uh, Kickstarter. I think his name is Yancy something. He wrote this really great book last year, or maybe the year before, where he's talking a lot about the the kind of ideas that you had starting your first uh, coffee company about sustain. Like now it's called sustainability. But what he talks about is like how do you create a business where you're actually being a good ancestor you know where you're 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 not like the foundation of corporate America and business in America particularly is maximizing profits and if you're a business person who wants to do something creative and Kickstarter is super creative it's like supporting artists and you don't want to maximize profits because that's the only way to do that is to like run a thing into the ground right so like you start at a and you're like the end is there and I'm going towards it but there's this whole new category of company that he had to create. So like Patagonia, he talks about Patagonia as being one of these companies where legally you're not obliged to maximize profits. And instead what you're doing is you're building a company that is going to build a culture and that is going to be sustainable. Everyone makes fair rates out of it, but it's really this artisanal process, which is what you're doing. And I mean, that to me is super inspiring. Like, you know, you, feel like you should you are doing something creative and artistic and I'm an artist but I feel like I want to be more of a business person when I see that because like I want to do that too yeah. for the arts yeah so I mean maybe I'm a business person who's wanting to be more creative and uh, you're the opposite yeah. of that um, <laughs> I think that's exactly true yeah. we, we actually well, didn't, I don't know anything yeah. about business yeah <laughs> But also, well, maybe you can help me with the lighting and I yeah. can do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To do business. But also, I wanted to extend your story a little bit into just because you started to flirt with it about the origin stuff and keeping sustainable and everything else. And you brought up Kickstarter. Is a couple of years ago you did a Kickstarter. Yeah. And for and those who don't know this story, do you know about their Kickstarter? It's just so delicious on so many <laughs> levels. Um, and I was, I remember when you were telling me about it, I was like, it's a bit audacious, you know, the, the whole idea, right? Yeah, and then you made me do a TEDx Wellington talk <laughs> on it before it even, like, officially was yeah, going to go you, forward. Yeah, you pitched me the idea I that I was like, right? I would make a great TEDx talk, and I was yeah. doing one of the first TEDx Wellingtons, and yeah. you spoke in 2014. Yeah. And um, if you haven't seen that talk, watch it, just because I don't see many talks where you get to taste it and that's what we did. We held it with in 400 people, and you were the last person on mm -hmm. for a reason. We put you on the last because uh, Gabe was talking about chocolate, but also he was educating the audience 
in why chocolate is just like wine, which you brought up. But everybody got to taste different chocolates mm -hmm. in the audience. So they all got to taste and you were explaining the different origins and stuff like that. And then you talked about this idea w about going somewhere and finding um, fair trade chocolatiers or chocolate growers mm -hmm. and then bringing it back and doing something different with it. So pick up that story from the perspective of where, how that then got born into a Kickstarter and what you did with it. Sure, yeah. Um, so it was, it was not long after we'd opened that there was a regular customer, Sarah Price, and she was addicted to our hot chocolate. So mm. she'd come in most days. I heard about your hot chocolate. They're a bit good. You come yeah. down here. Yeah. We've just started making our own marshmallows and, and blowtorching them. Oh my this. gosh, my son's <laughs> um, so that's pretty exciting. Um, and she didn't come in for a while and, and then she, she came back and says, hey, I've just been a part of her work uh, at the VSA was uh, to, she stayed in, in Bougainville, um, which is uh, an autonomous region just off the coast of Papua New Guinea. And they've been wanting their own autonomy for, from mainland Papua New Guinea for many years. Um, it's sort of at the top of the Solomon Islands, a part, part of sort of Melanesia. So this, it goes uh, sort of Vanuatu, then the Solomon Islands, and at the top there there's uh, two little islands, and that's Bougainville. And she'd been back there and met this cocoa grower, James Rutana, who planted his first tree in 1948. And he had 100 hectares and was... Uh, and so one of the main exports, two main exports in Bougainville are copra and cocoa. So it's really important to Bougainville. Um, and they've been through a long, tough period with uh, a, a civil a war that happened around uh, a, a large um, copper mine there. And uh, it was, yeah, they've been through a long, hard period. So agriculture is really important as an alternative to maybe reopening the mine and having all of those problems again. Um, and she, she brought back some cocoa beans somehow through customs and everything. Um, and so we made it into chocolate. It's really interesting. It's really interesting tasting chocolate. Tell me more about James Rutana. And so one thing led to another. And uh, I went over there and visited him. And he, we sat down drinking coconuts. So it was lovely, beautiful place, really untouched. Um, and he said he was going to give up the farm because... He was getting so little for, per kilo for his beans because they all get sent to just to be made con into confectionery, so the quality doesn't really matter. Um, it's more of a commodity market there, and they get put into sacks at his farm with PNG written on them. And he was like, oh, I'd really like to promote Bougainville chocolate. And uh, but the only thing is, all of their cocoa has to go to the mainland and then it gets sent off to Europe to be processed into confectionery. And I joked and I said, Well, why don't we make the first single origin Bougainville bar and, and, and work on direct trade? And he said, well, back in the day, he thought there used to be a shipping uh, line from Bougainville to New Zealand, but there's not anymore. Everything has to go to the mainland. And I joked and I said, well, why don't I get some people together and we learn how to sail a boat and we'll just like leave and we'll just come and get it and take it back. Who's going to like, hopefully no one stops us. We'll just go and do that. And then we can say it's direct trade and then we can make the world's first single origin Bougainville bar. Yeah. And um, we had a laugh and they said, no, you should, you should definitely do that. 
and so the seed was planted and then we did a Kickstarter and 500 people from around New Zealand backed us for that and that gave us, uh, and then the Wellington Chocolate Factory matched dollar for dollar for to, to actually have a campaign where we could hire a boat and go and get one tonne of cocoa beans and bring it down without using any fossil fuel, picked up by Courier Bicycle and then into Wellington. And that is such a cool story. And, and, and so then DK said, that's a, yeah, that's a cool story. Why don't you, you do a TED talk about it? I still didn't know how to sail or have a boat. And even on our Kickstarter, the, um, the, the boat was just a stock image of a boat. We still didn't have it at that point in time. But luckily, um, uh, uh, um, a guy from the University of South Pacific in Fiji got hold of the story and he said, would you consider taking a traditional vaka Right, a voyaging canoe um, that they that they are trying to promote a new generation of people who can navigate with the stars, and so that their knowledge isn't lost. There's a researcher at Victoria who's a volcanist, which is the coolest title ever. Cool. People who study volcanoes are volcanists, oh. and his whole thing is setting up these wakas to go and do volcano research at different Whoa. places around the Pacific. Uh, he's done it a couple of times That's already. But this is cool because I think there's like a the groundswell for this. Um, because there's several of these waka that were given by a philanthropist for this purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a lot of the Pacific Islands have one. And I think New Zealand has two. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised if the, yeah, if, if he utilizes this network of mm -hmm. um, quite tradition, trying to be built in a traditional way. Still with GPS as a backup, yeah. of course. But, <laughs> yeah. um, so but you went on a sale? No, we said, yeah, that's great, we'll take it. So you didn't, still didn't know how to sail, you were just hitching a ride then at that point? We were hitching a ride, right. um, but yeah. we had to be working crew. So yes. they had to teach us, you know, show us the ropes, literally, mm. the different knots, and because uh, there isn't any winches. It's all very, mm. you know, physical. Right. Um, so we had to learn that. There's Did only 12 of us. Did you know anything about sailing before this? Did you know anything about sailing before this? Uh, I'd sailed once with a, a, a friend uh, in Australia <laughs> for a week. That's uh, not But no, yeah. okay. no essentially <laughs> no. But the, the, the crew was made up of mostly Fiji uh, people, um, uh, uh, sailors from Fiji, the Cook Islands, and with us, New Zealand. So it was about a 12-person crew. And... Uh, it was pretty crazy. So we started in Fiji and then went up to uh, Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands. And what we didn't realize is it's tradition for these waka as we sail in to have a traditional welcome from each of the different countries that we mm. sail into, which was beautiful and like amazingly generous when, everywhere we went because people were supporting the idea of waka voyaging and, and keeping this knowledge alive. So it became much more about Waka Voyaging than it did about our chocolate story, which is awesome. It sort of yeah. morphed into, into a different thing. Um, and you were talking about storytelling, and I love storytelling and, and doing things. Uh, we did take somebody along who documented it, but I we would, haven't yet I um, hope so. edited it or done anything like that. We've sort of got busy with other stuff. But um, it was, it did turn into a great story. And the amazing porphyry we had into Wellington Harbour, um, other people were out on, 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 on canoes coming and m greeting us and ceremony at the mud eye and, and the waterfront there. 
and it was just beautiful in the carver ceremony at the chocolate factory afterwards and mm. uh, so what took we were supposed to do it in six weeks it took three months mm -hmm. and I lost 10 kilos <laughs> and by the time we were sailing into Wellington we were we'd run out of food it was really loose we'd run out of food and we were living off fried rice balls on rice mm -hmm. and only had one jerry can of water left yeah. and when we came into and the customs boat met us they were sort of saying going through the list do you have any meat do you have any food and like nut 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 and they're like, what, what are you doing here? And we, oh, we just went up to Papua New Guinea and picked up a, these tons of this ton of cocoa beans to make into chocolate, and that yeah. just sort of was like, hilarious. Were you, were you doing? Exactly, it's such yeah. a great story, though. Yeah. But like, so my question is, that's an amazing experience. How do you then convey that? It, it's not just the experience of what happened to you, but like the the ancient stuff that's coming into that story with this tradition of sailing and walk like how do you put that into the final product then how do you convey that so yeah um so the the bougainville bar was a double-sided wrapper so we had some real estate on the inside that we could have pictures of james rutana and the waka and 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 tell the story just on on that on the wrapper itself and then the other side gina um did illustrations with bougainvillea because that's where that comes from and the waka coming through oh. and that's yeah, cool. yeah, and it was—it's it's one of my favorite all-time rappers that we've ever done, and she did a great job telling the story within the artwork as well. But we haven't done nearly as good enough story uh, outside of that. And um, we, one of the elders that that runs the trust for the Utaniyalo, the Waka, said, "Did you know that this is the first time in two hundred years that goods have been traded between the islands and another country?" on Waka and I had no idea that it was so significant that that was hopefully gonna that people will do more of this and utilize these boats uh, these canoes to to keep doing it like yeah. this and we need to find somebody who can uh, who can sort of take on some of this footage and maybe mm. put it together and and help to tell the story because yeah. I think that's something that we I came back and there was almost twice as many staff than when I left because we got busy in that time. We only just opened and we left a newborn business. And uh, thanks to Miriam who was running the place, she it got busy and she just started. She couldn't even contact us on the boat. She just started hiring and we came back and it was great. Um, but we, then we got in, busy. Yeah. Well, this taps into what you were talking about earlier. That doesn't sound like a business man's. Um, <laughs> approach to business to me. That sounds like a creative approach, an adventurous approach to business. You know, no, yeah. no business person in their right mind would take that amount of time off from a new business to try something just for one product as well. Yeah, to create the story, but like you say, you spent three months out there when it was supposed to be only six weeks. Well, we'd like to do it again, so it's not just a one-off, but differently this time. Yes. And, um, it maybe includes some more island, more um, Pacific Islands, um, but no, it wasn't a sensible business decision. I mean, when we had the cost decision, of seventy dollars right? a kilo for freight for a ton of beans, it was not. But then the the goodwill that it created, uh, and also now that the, now there is a Bougainville Chocolate Festival, annual chocolate festival, and craft chocolate makers from around the world come and they 
they judged the beans and they, you know, and it, it probably would have happened anyway, but we liked, I like to think that we had a part of bringing, all we wanted to do was say, because we're only small, say to other chocolate makers, look, here's a really interesting origin that tastes unlike any other yeah. origin. And so you should consider this next time you're placing an order for interesting beans. Well, and I think that's that, happened now. Isn't that your other job? Like you're a tastemaker, right? <laughs> like taste literally, maker. you're a tastemaker. You help people develop their taste. We do, we've done a lot of, yeah, and education. You're, you're, you're like bringing them to this chocolate source and saying, taste this. This is real chocolate and it's yeah. two ingredients. So it's just beans and sugar. So we let the beans be the hero. So if we buy good beans, there's not actually that much, there's not, you can, you can watch the whole process down at the factory and we're not trying to hide anything, it's complete transparency. Here are the beans and this is, we add a little bit of sugar to act as like a backdrop, make them more palatable. But really we're just saying, taste these beans. Mm. But also the sugar is coconut sugar and it's natural. And oh, it's one not. of, a couple of ours have coconut sugar and mm. other, the other, the main sugar we use is uh, raw fair trade organic sugar from sure, Paraguay. Yeah. And um, so just kind of relatively neutral so that we can um, make taste. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm interested in as well is that you guys got something in common from a, a, from a creative perspective is, you touched on it earlier, is you in the chocolate factory did a VR experience. Yes. Why did you do that and what, what was the thinking behind that? We were approached by, um, a guy who has his own VR company, Polytronic, uh, Tony. Yeah, I know that guy. He's a character. He is. Yeah, he's, that's, a, well, he's that, a big kid. That's he's how. That's great. how I learned about Wellington Chocolate Factory. As I was telling DK, we used to have this really grassroots, lo-fi VR meetup. I yeah. say back in the day, but it was like around 2016 or 20. I don't know. Around that time, 2015. And yeah, he rocked up to this user group meter. This whatever. Uh, VR group and showed us what he was working on. Yeah, cool. And we were all trying to figure out like, how do you make VR? Like, what's the camera setup? How, like, all this like really technical stuff with hardware and rigs. And he just had some ideas, and that's how I learned that you guys had a VR experience, which is a whole nother thing that we can talk about, which is like virtual reality as an experience and the physical space and the relationship between that. You guys were basically doing that very early on, and that's a whole thing now. <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, it was, it was great. It was a great opportunity for us. Um, we never would have thought to do it, but I sort of had known him from around Wellington. So when he had this idea to create a VR experience where you can have the headset in the factory on a specific seat in the factory, when you put that on the whole factory from that same perspective turned into cartoon with, instead of chocolate makers, it was these little creatures called owies that kind of looked like kiwis running around making chocolate. And instead of walking down into the laneway, uh, you walk down into uh, the Papua New Guinea jungle and then it goes through all these sort of kind of uh, fantastic sort of um, animated versions of the entire cocoa growing and harvesting fermenting and drying process and at the end of that process uh, so you're guided through with my character who's in cartoon I did the voice for it mm -hmm. and that was fun <laughs> um, and then at the end of the process uh, my character throws you 
a chocolate in the, wrapped in this purple foil. And the chocolate sort of hovers here. And we did this at Te Papa, uh, the chocolate festival. We had a few set up. And it was great to see kids then sort of reach yeah. for the chocolate there, yeah. take off the thing. And I was in, that, I was in the same um, costume yeah. and then hand them one in real life. Magical. And that was, <laughs> it was so fun to just see their faces. Wow. Yeah. That's so nice cool. <laughs> so was that an installation at, in the factory for a while or was it always intended as an off-site thing? Uh, we did it for, we had a few set up uh, for Cuba Dupa. Um, about half half a dozen sets that were hired. So we have two set. We own two sets, mm -hmm. and what we're in, what we're intending on doing is having them some sort of permanent solution. But we there are a few logistical things we've got to think about um, whether they're the right sets and how do we manage it. If we're busy, how do we give people and because you got to constantly sort of, update the firmware on those yeah consents. yeah <laughs> and and explain you got to sit down and if you feel sick take them off you and, and all of that sort of stuff offboard. yeah no it's a whole um, thing but we had a queue of forty five minutes for people queuing a Cuba Duper for a five minute experience mm -hmm. so many people had never had a VR experience and that's what I'm I'm really surprised still that it's not so. Not mainstream. Mainstream as, it, as, as we thought this, it so this, might. Yeah, this is, the, this is an amazing thing that I was just talking to my team because we just finished a VR project and we were showing it to some friends today about, which is like, we're in a moment where it's like train arriving at a station, which is the first film ever made in the 1800s. Mm. And the stories, there's all these apocryphal stories about when it was exhibited, the train literally arrives at a station, it comes towards you, that's where the camera set up, and people got up and started running because they'd never encountered such realism before. This is the story. And it's like the child reaching for the chocolate because they've never encountered this before. They don't understand the mediation of this form. And there are, like, we're in a world where everyone, for the most part, knows what a movie is, that most people have experienced cinema. but. Few people have still experienced virtual reality, and maybe that'll continue to be the case, but in the future, if it's not, it's this amazing moment where you get to, you get to introduce someone for the first time ever to a technology, and like, that's kind of cool. Isn't it? There's a huge responsibility as well. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but I've got a flashback. My, um, back in the late 90s, my parents brought back from Florida this new thing, and it was one of those magic eye pictures. You know where you have to look through the picture to just see stare the thing at come it up. For a certain, yeah, and you have to change your focus. And for for like months, my brother couldn't get it. Yeah, I don't think where, I was really yeah, good at that. Yeah, because I just can't do it. And some people still can't, right? <laughs> and then for other people, it's like, oh my god, that's trippy. I can see like whatever and all. And it is kind of that moment where people you introduce this thing, and some people get it instinctively and think it's kind of cute or cool or wicked and see like different things and other people are like don't mm. get it yeah <laughs> and VR like there was a time in uh, I think early 90s when that was the first VR stuff where you had the big headsets in and I remember putting it on and it was all blocky I remember trying one out and you could only stand in you had a joystick where did you do it things. out of curiosity this is back in like uh, London in the science museum or something yeah it's probably that cave was, thing yeah it's and it very was, huge it was and there's yeah. like safety rails that's right so you, you stood in yourself. like a little circle type thing and <laughs> there's you, amazing photos of people doing that and you're just like 
what year is this? But it's, it's like also like a really times. big rig on your head as yeah. well, really heavy. And even at that point, you could shoot things, be kind of looking around in the spatial kind of fidelity, which did go with you. It was very it. Tron. But it was a bit, yeah. <laughs> but even then you were kind of, okay, that's all right, cool. But now the fidelity is really getting to the stage where it's quite compelling, isn't it? And if you try Magic Leap and things like that, the AR things now, where it interacts with what you see, and that's the disconnect. I'm finding interest in the disconnect between AR and VR, the discourse and also the, the way the tech is going, right? Because it does seem a little bit of a split, or am I kind of making stuff up? Because no, there are, there's a, yeah. It's cool. a split, and I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of in the VR camp. I, right. I, I think that Magic Leap is amazing, and it's like a beautiful technology, but not enough people are developing for it, for the storytelling to move forward quickly. But it's very expensive. VR is? Well, more people are developing for VR because the, the apparatus, the headsets, first off, like the Quest costs $300 now. Mm. So it's just easier to buy and easier to use, although none of it's very easy in the end. But <laughs> I like virtual reality. I would love to develop in the future for augmented reality, but again, it's one of the few mediums where you have to you have someone's attention 100% of their attention right. which is an honor and a huge responsibility mm. because we don't even we second screen almost everything now mm. you know when we're at home even when we're at the movies we might look at our phone we're not supposed to but no, we do no. that all on the, the time on the roxy right yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, no no we would never do that no. not the roxy <laughs> um, but yeah, in virtual reality, you have to put the headset on, you're fully immersed, you have to be attentive to the thing that's happening, which for a storyteller is like an amazing place to be because very few other mediums will allow you to have someone's full attention anymore. So that's why I like it. So the, the thing that really surprised me, but also got me excited by that medium was when the UN did that uh, virtual reality experience uh, about being an immigrant or a a displaced immigrant in a sense and I don't know if you saw that where they took it I think they took it to the UN Council didn't they they got the leaders to experience it so I think that was Gabo Aurora right yeah so he's really interesting a VR person who's I think he's at Johns Hopkins as well mm. but he does a lot of this stuff like he did a Sufi VR experience and the whole thing was like to get people you know he grew up as an Indian family uh, with Hindu background and there was always this like latent sort of tension between Indian Muslims and Indian Hindus and this is a thing that exists anyways and he wanted to like try and break through that and so he did this experience he did the, a story about um, Sufism and then he just has done a lot of these kinds of experience where it's like socially social impact driven VR and he was a ambassador at the UN for this initiative I think and that's the amazing thing when you talk about that full attention, but then the responsibility that you have. Yeah. Because then you also see stupid things on the web when you get a grandma kind of falling off a chair because they put on a VR and they've put that's her awful. on a roller coaster. Yeah. Or someone starts beating someone. I mean, you, somebody's body, even though they're in a virtual space, mm. you have you have physical uh, control over their bodies or what they're going to do with their bodies, and you have to be like super respectful of that. Mm. What's your view on sort of an age, the earliest age for children for VR? Do you have it? It wasn't there with, um, uh, what's the, the other main VR 
headset company, um, Oculus. Oculus. Mm -hmm. They they had a 13 or something age limit or 14 yeah. or something like that. Um, do you have any ideas around safety? I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, first off, the manufacturing of the headsets. Like nobody makes them for small heads. Even a regular headset, I have a small head and <laughs> I have trouble with it. Um, so they're not made for little heads and it's not worth it to make them for little heads because what's the market, right? Um, not enough user testing in general, but like my husband and my son do like to do the quest sometimes together, like tilt brush, which is just like whimsical mm. painting um, and shapes and he loves it, but he's super confused and enthralled. He doesn't understand like the spatial stuff that's happening and that it could be dangerous. He would like run into a wall, you know? <laughs> How old did you say he was? Three and a half. Three and a half, yeah, yeah. sure. So you're just kind of yeah. like there with him, sit him down and say, okay, like sit here and look around. But when do kids want to do? They want to like jump and run. Yeah, yeah. And that's what you should be able to do. But the hardware isn't set up for them to do that. And then there's not enough uh, stories that are appropriate for them. So I think I like that's that the painting. real... I'm going to introduce my kids to the painting. The tilt brush thing yeah. is super cool. Yeah, that sounds awesome. There's a lot of videos online where people do create, don't they? Oh my they? gosh, in, they're amazing. In that stuff, and they create beautiful works of art, in a sense. Yeah. And it's all 3D, so they're moving around, and they're creating like works that you know, you know, like, uh, well, just lots of different artistic styles. Remember that film from many years ago, What Dreams May Come? It was Robin Williams, mm. and he's like a man who's grieving or something, but he keeps going right. into these paintings and walking around in paintings. Yeah, his wife dies and he's kind of having a grief. Kind yeah, of and it's like this like uh, intersection between the real world and this like painterly reality mm -hmm. that he... Basically, Tilt Brush is that. It lets you do that. And yeah. fine artists can get in there and just do amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a fine artist, so I can't do Tilt Brush, but I appreciate Tilt Brush and I think it's cool for kids. But I also want to bring up, because you're spending a lot of time in that space, both in working with Vic Uni, right, and the stuff that you do with them, but also Minimum Mass, which yeah. I was reading about and yeah. trying to get my head around with the greatest <laughs> best. Yeah. Give us the boilerplate, because I want you to experience the boilerplate, what Minimum Mass and the story is. And then it's recently Tribecta, right? Yeah, so you give us the, what's Minimum Mass? So Minimum Mass, uh, Minimum Mass is a narrative short virtual reality. Um, it's a story of a couple who experience a series of miscarriages and come to believe that their children are being born in another dimension. It's set in Rotorua, New oh, Zealand. You, you should pause at that point, <laughs> by the way, because wow. that's a lot to take in. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a lot. sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. okay, sorry, go on. Yeah. I didn't want to be... I'm not being glib, but it is. Like, that storyline itself is quite... Okay, so miscarriaging, but born in different dimensions, and it's a VR experience. Like, straight away, you're like, okay, go on then. Yeah. But, sorry, yeah, it was based in yeah, New Zealand, Yeah, I've right? been living with the story for so long. I'm just like, that's the story. <laughs> Um, it's set in Rotorua, New Zealand, and Rotorua was one of the first places that I visited in New Zealand. Um, I came in 2008, and I worked at Weta Digital and worked on Avatar and a bunch of other films, and we were always, this is a story of people that work in VFX, they're always working, right? Mm -hmm. So I spent all my time in the eastern suburbs. Um, and then finally, there was this opportunity to do this um, you know, like this bicycle race that happens, like around the lake or something. Oh, uh, 
up in Topo? Yeah, Taupo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Little yeah, bicycle I've, I've race that everyone, like, yeah. yeah. So I used to be really into road cycling, and so me and a bunch of friends got a team together, and we went and did that, and it was amazing. Like, wow, this place is like an alternate reality. It's like so magical, the steam everywhere, the, the mud different. pools. Yeah, the smell was interesting. <laughs> but the landscape is otherworldly. Mm. And that always stayed with me as like my impression of New Zealand that, you know, people talk about New Zealand as Middle Earth and all this other stuff, but really New Zealand is so like uniquely New Zealand and it has nothing to do with the mediation of cinema or mainstream storytelling. It's about like this ancient landscape that is evocative and there's nothing else like it. And that always stayed with me. So when we wrote this, my husband and I wrote this story together and we wrote it while we were trying to have our son so it was kind of a dark story because there was no end to the story. It was just about the journey of trying to conceive and how two people in trying to create something, create life, there's a way in which you come together, but then also in a way in which you become isolated in your pain and your sadness when things aren't happening. And so it was an exploration of that. Um, so it's like Rotorua, New Zealand, black holes and the black holes the speculative dimension is really about this is like a heavy story and how do we bring more people into it and so genre using science fiction we can take something that's personal dark heavy and then add some levity to it um, and make it a little bit fun so and it's all computer graphics so it's all like and hand animated more or less it's animated all the worlds are like crafted like in, it's it's also in miniature so it's like this dollhouse experience that plays out in front of you um yeah so we've been working on that for two years solid and before that there was a lot of development time and we just finished it um and we just showed it to a bunch of friends today who've been hearing about it for ages and yeah like to your point people come out of the experience and they're like that was so intense and i need some time to think about that right. yeah. the offboarding you know, this is what you discovered in the Wellington Chocolate Factories. Like, you can't put people into VR and then just be like, all right, see ya. Like, it takes time. Sure, They've experienced another reality, and you have to then help them come back into this reality. So there's, like, time and care that has to be taken with that. And that's, I think, what the festival uh, exhibition stuff is supposed to be about, although it's been a weird year. With well, festival. with COVID, right? Yeah. And yeah, how that, you know, with when you apply for film festivals, you can't really travel now, I would imagine. Yeah. And it's all virtual. However, with the VR stuff, is it going to become digitally available that other people can take that experience? And is that the hope? So, yeah, so we're doing something super experimental right now, which all, all the festivals are getting behind and trying to understand. Um, so we were going to premiere at Tribeca. That didn't work out for obvious reasons. And then what happened is that Tribeca and Cannes teamed up and they're going to do their festival all online and they've created this virtual gallery called the Museum of Realities and it's super beautiful. So like all that tilt brush stuff that we were talking about, mm -hmm. it's originally designed by tilt brush artists to be as if you're walking through a museum and here's a piece of art and you walk right up to it. It's all happening in the headset. And now what they're doing is they've turned it into a gallery where you can walk up to a piece of art and then launch a virtual reality experience. So it's best of both worlds. You get some physical, spatial 
you know, you get to, there's other people there, so you can, it's all networked, you can see them okay. as well. It's super experimental, and it's like, it takes a good several hours to like download the software and get it all set up, yeah. but that's what we're doing now, and that's gonna go live next week, actually. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. It's such, such a, it sounds like a cathartic creative, you know, project that you were involved with, but also, like you say, when you share and stuff like that, the responsibility again, I always think about TEDx Wellington and when we put people on stages, and we always think about it from a lens of the audience because we never know where they're at mm -hmm. with the story that we're presenting to them. Mm -hmm. I remember we had one lady talking about, she was a funeral director, and that's going to trigger some people who are organizing funerals or coming up to thinking about organizing funerals. You just don't know where people are, right? Mm -hmm. So we had to try and manage the emotional response of the audience. Um, and in that case, what we did, we put her at the end of a session and then you went out of the session, so you had a breathing room, but then we had a, a bunch of kittens you can go and cuddle, mm -hmm. you know, so new life. The English. But I'm just thinking about how that applies to your thinking when you put something out there so arresting like that. Is there a thought? I don't know. The responsibility is on the viewer still, but yeah. I'm just... Yeah. Well, if we were at the festival, we would have yeah. these conversations. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to... There, there will be panels and opportunities to talk to people, but yeah, I think people are going to be at home. We don't know the circumstances under which they are doing these, they're doing these experiences. So um, I'm really hoping to learn about what, ha what happens, where we go with this. I can't wait to, to see it. You can just come by. I can show it to you. Oh, really? <laughs> you <don't>, yeah. <laughs> we should organize a time. Actually, we should do that. Yes, we should have a show. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Definitely pull something together yeah. like that. Um, yeah, really, really trippy. Uh, I want to come back to kind of both your creative world a little bit, especially your musician world, which you still do. <coughs> and how much kind of your spare time informs your work time? Because I find creatives and, and people who do different things also have a variety of interests. I find that, that they get influenced. Like where does jazz and music come into your life and how does that inform your business world? Or does it, or have you never thought about the correlation? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, uh, I mean, I learned jazz from a very young age from my grandfather and then sort of fell in love with it. And um, I guess there is a correlation between the creative process and improvisation. Because you sort of, I sort of feel like I know I'm onto something in business if I can experience even 10 seconds of some sort of flow. And if I've practiced hard enough and uncomfortable enough with the chord changes, I might get 10 seconds of flow during a solo. Mm. Um, and in that 10 seconds, you realize how, why some jazz musicians spend their entire lives getting so good that they can live in that the whole time. Because we just, I just get a glimpse. And I know that people like, you know, John Coltrane or, you know, that they're living, I, I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine that, that that's not 10 seconds. It's a much greater uh, amount of flow. And when I have ideas about a new business or a new idea within an existing business, if I get a similar sort of feeling, it's weird, hard to explain, but 
I'm like, oh, oh, that's good. More of that. So I'll lean into Validates that. Validates it as something. And I'll know explore. that that. So perhaps there's yeah. correlation with with between the two. Uh, it does sound like you know it validates your feeling that you're onto something if there's yeah. a flow it's like a sort of you know how they say we should listen to our bodies more mm. yeah it's that sort of thing and i haven't given it a lot of thought until i was asked a question but it's something that i probably should do a bit more thinking about it's something. really interesting yeah, because i also think about what you do and how much space there is for improvisation especially when you're coding things and planning things, like how much in an artistic perspective, digitally, how much room is there for improvisation there? Well, we're always trying not to improvise because <laughs> sometimes improvisation is expensive because um, right. you, in visual effects, because you have crews and people and then that translates into expense. But I think that this is, um, this is the inherent tension in visual effects, which is that lots of planning and planning down to the scientific level, like there's this physical accuracy that you want to capture and represent. And that's like in terms of light, in terms of gravity, in terms of motion, in terms of like things feeling real. And the way in which they feel real is we have to understand how it works and according to science. But then it's art. So you have to establish that relationship to reality and then you have to break it. And that's the, that's the art direction and that's the improvisation. But you, the order of operations is usually you do one, you get that one-to-one -one reality relationship going and then you start to break that relationship and you go further and further into the art direction. And this is why people talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning and oh, eventually computers will just do it. Uh, we'll just, you know, deep fakes. Like you can generate an image so that trippy. looks exactly yeah. like a person. Yes, you can do that. But what makes um, characters in computer graphics feel real is that they're doing unrealistic things. There's, there's like, there's that decision-making, artistic decision-making process which breaks with reality. It's exaggerated and it's more compelling. So the improvisation happens um, later in the process and also like I guess it's just like anything else like you have to be open to it when it happens. I'm just thinking about the progression <coughs> and we talked earlier about this the progression of visual effects and now in the 90s when we were watching certain things and it was obvious however we forgive it because it was hinting at something we appreciated it what it was trying to do versus when you forget that there's something magical happening or fake, but it looks so real. Mm -hmm. And we've got to that point now where we are losing kind of the, the effects. The effects are now just the reality. They're seamless. Yeah, and the deep fake stuff is really trippy when you can, you know, kind of morph Obama's kind of face over someone else saying something. You're like, okay, that's pretty close now. And you can still see the nuances a little bit sometimes and the intonation is and the, the lip curls are not quite right yeah, sometimes yeah. and you can kind of make it out however we're still at the birth of that right right so five years time the exponential curve and growth and all that stuff it's going to be trippy and I'm, I'm thinking about how do you reflect on kind of your career because I want to share a story with you which I, I've kind of got asterisks here which is a really funny one because it happened only recently a couple of weeks ago I went I got a brother here in New Zealand 
He's got a couple of rugrats, so my niece and nephew. I went and visited them for the first time in three months mm. since the lockdown, right? So it was a bit crazy. They were just all over my face. It was fantastic. They're like five and seven, so it was fun. But my brother was more excited about telling me about Lion King because he was like, have you seen Lion King? I was like, yeah, it's been a while. Why are you bringing this up? He said, no, 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 the, the, the real life Lion King. Right. This is and the whole thing, like... like the live action Lion King. The live action Lion King. I said, I don't think it's live action. I don't think they like beat the animals or drug them to do that, you know? I think it's like all three. He said, yeah, it's 3D, but it's like, oh, visual effects, sorry. But it's like amazing. We watched it the other day and he just went off on a tangent and how beautiful and how trippy it was because he was trying to figure out how they made the elephants work Mm. with the (laughs) the pelicans and the thing and how that could never happen and because it looks so seamless obviously some of the animals were real to a certain point and then they switched the animals out and stuff like that and i'm going i don't know i've never seen it so we're like looking it up and Apparently, all the animals in it were fake, apart from one little bit, wasn't it? Um, and you worked on that film, didn't you? I didn't or work on them? no. So I worked on this is kind of weird. I or worked, one of the Lion King films. I worked on a there's the there's the original Lion King, which yes. is the from the Renaissance period of Disney <laughs> 2D animation. Yes. And then when I was there after Tangled, we had some downtime and they wanted to do a stereo version of the animated Lion King. And so we made it stereo and it was a very hand, I'm not gonna bore you with the process, but it was like super bespoke and handmade. Like you had to do lots of little drawings and shapes and things in order to create this effect of like, you can watch it with the glasses and it's stereo. So it becomes 3D. Yeah, so it becomes 3D and it was only ever a 2D, 2D in both senses, like 2D hand-drawn and 2D flat. Right. Um, so we made a stereo 3D version of that. And then they made an actual 3D CG version of that. 3D, 3D CG. CG. Say that fast, 10. Yeah. With the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> <laughs> and have you seen that one? I have not. My husband and son went and saw it together. I've seen parts of it. Like, I don't want to be a super purist, but I do think that the hand-drawn Lion King does it for me. Oh, yeah, you can't great. defeat that, I don't right? Need, and that's I don't I, need another new, more Lion King experience. I'm good with that one. So I haven't seen it. But I love the fact <laughs> my brother was just adamant that it's, they were cut in real and CGI. But when we looked it up, it was John Favreau who did it. Yeah, I, I do love the discourse around it. Where people are like, have you seen the live action Lion King? And they're like, it's still animated. It's just a different technology. But it looks beautiful. And it is, yeah. You should watch it with the kids. They'll trip it's out very there. realistic. So realistic. Like the you know the obviously Simba's chatting away. Yeah. And you're like, obviously that's not a pup, you know, it's not a proper lion cub. And and my brother's like, no, but you know they probably got half of it. Anyway, just it was well, a, a wonderful right. moment yeah. of just like losing reality, and he was so excited by it. It was very funny. And that's the world you're in is my point. Yeah. Is trying to hide the digital and make it as real as possible. Yeah, so I, I don't know why I'm forms. not, I, I don't mean to be down on CG Lion King. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. And I am personally very interested in photorealism as a thing that we continue to chase in storytelling and why that's important to us. Like, why do we want to see things that are more realistic? I think, And you, you see know, that in video games, yeah, so I see a lot yeah. of, to make you like, it's becoming so crisp. Yeah, what is that about, that need for realism? 
Um, I mean, that's like a deep philosophical question that I don't think we're going to answer. <laughs> Gabe, what is it about photorealism? <laughs> and where does it where does it end? If once we once we achieve it, then do we have a situation where we need to make a real life? What's that? Um, that series uh, it's a Western series, and you can go in Westworld. Yeah, yeah, Westworld. Is that are people going to keep? wanting more realism until it ends up like a Westworld. Well, so there's this... Because they're less satisfied yeah, with... Yeah, well, there's this amazing story. I don't know if you're familiar with Borges, the Argentinian writer. Um, no. Yeah, so he's, he's, he's known for writing in this, like, magical, real tradition, and he's amazing. His short stories are amazing. But he wrote this short story back in the day, which is about a map that someone's trying to uncover. And they spend all this time doing this research to like recreate a map of a lost civilization. And in the end, by spending all this time generating the map, and I'm not really telling the story very well, it becomes the new thing. It, the, the map replaces reality. It becomes okay. that big. And so that's kind of what you're talking. That's what Westworld is. And people have talked about this, that like, we're creating a re in, in like the hyperrealism, the fixation on photorealism, which is eventually maybe going to supplant our reality itself. Well, are we... A ma matrix sort of a... Yeah. yeah. Exactly yeah. what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Before you arrived, we were discussing the matrix because they're making number four, you said. Yeah, I feel like I'm always talking about the matrix. I love that's the matrix. Okay. <laughs> but that's a perfect illustration back in, you know, end of the 90s, beginning of 2000s, where they were talking about that crossover. And, and now we're getting to a point where are we all in a simulation, right? Yeah, and I kind of, like, I love talking about the simulation and science fiction, but I read this amazing book recently about um, dystopia and the apocalypse and how there's a, a journalist who's gone and looked at people that are enacting the apocalypse. And so there's a, this amazing chapter where he talks about billionaires who are building their bunkers in New Zealand, right? We hear about this all yeah. the time, like Peter Thiel, whoever. Mm -hmm. And he goes and he looks at these bunkers and he investigates it and tries to understand what it's about. And I've really come to believe that the apocalypse, our fixation on dystopia is doing a disservice to us and to our next generation in that it's a form of escape. It's like, oh, let's talk about this fantasy thing about the world that's going to be in ruins instead of spending our time fixing the world that we're in. We actually have a choice. We have an opportunity to do things to improve this reality instead of like checking out and going and creating alternate realities. And it's like our inability to be in the moment. So we're just going to extrapolate forward and talk about the ruin that hasn't happened yet. It could be self perpetuating yeah and that's if we are always looking for I mean I guess part of our evolution is to always be on the lookout for danger is it the amygdala I think it's, it gives us that sort of um, we're always leaning towards looking for what's wrong in the world and what's what's a potential threat because so, that's how we survive yeah and so that, so now we've got so much information and so many things we can imagine going wrong and if that's left unchecked which it has been and if the collective consciousness is, is heading towards that, that dystopian future is, is, is a likely outcome, it will be more likely. I prefer to think that we're going to come to a tipping point that is more positive than that. 
and it will there will be sort of a more of a collective uh, enlightenment of a of a of a sort that we can live a more utopian um, future. And I, I think yeah. that the more people, whether we truly believe it or not, even you can start to think that way, and just maybe you'll then start to believe it, and it just maybe that will actually then become the future. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'd rather that. Even yeah. you know, I do think sort of like, oh, yeah, but it's probably. But no, I'm going to force myself to think that way because it's more likely it'll become a reality if we're all thinking that way. I mean, if you look at the amazing work that activists are doing right now with Black Lives Matter, like it's super inspiring. And you think about, okay, what, what, what can I do to help? And I really feel like as artists, our job is to literally visualize that future. Like that's what we do. And if we spend, like you say, all our time visualizing a dystopian future, well, then you've brought that reality to bear because that's where you put your focus. And if we can figure out what is what does utopia look like, and then we visualize it and we help people see that this is what utopia can be, then we can go there. And it sounds a little bit airy-fairy, but I feel like really this is what we have to do. Well, the alternative is so sad and dangerous and devastating. And at the moment, you know, you're an American living in New Zealand, probably looking at your home um, and where you're probably, some of your families are still are. I don't know how you're feeling about it. And if you want to share, that's fine. But it's, it's, a, it's a movement that is well overdue. And it's, it seems strange that it's happening from a perspective of so many of us who are always open to diversity and just difference of thinking and enjoy that and are madly curious about the other, no matter who they are, that this is still kind of something that's not obvious to everybody, that it doesn't matter where you're from and stuff, we all should kind of be very equal in how we approach people. And yeah, how would you, how you, can I ask you how you're feeling yeah. about what's happening in America? And I have a lot of feelings. For and sure, Most yeah. of them are really dark. You know, I feel, right sad, I feel angry, um, I feel guilty as well because I'm in the safest place in the world. Right. You know, like I get to create that utopian future for my son now and my family and friends don't get to do that. They have to be in it. They have yeah. to live with that dark reality every day, especially in places like Los Angeles, which has its own like super problematic history that's at the forefront all the time, I feel. So immense guilt, also like this is, yeah, this is like the hard, hard, hard work that we, this is where we are and we have to, we just have to be with it. And I think like this is our place to, to feel the discomfort because not enough people have been feeling discomfort. Yeah. And, and that's saw, why I we're here. Sorry, I saw a tweet earlier on about, uh, from uh, I think it was some black activist tweeting about, oh, thanks for all the white people for marching with us this week. And now it's tweeting about how overwhelmed they feel. Welcome to our world, <laughs> times whatever, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's not nice to talk about. And it's like obvious to some of us that, yeah, we shouldn't be, feel but it's kind of crucial. It's so crucial we get this bloody sorted and out in the open because then we can move on and have conversations about it. You know, not dispassionately, but at least to the point where we can actually talk about it, that there is a problem. Yeah. And I come from UK, which is and the, a certain place in the UK. The first ever black person I spoke to is when I went to university. 
because I'm from the valleys of South Wales, which doesn't have, you know, a lot of difference types of people. Um, so that was to me just delightful when I went to uni. It's like, oh, great, I get to speak and meet different people and all that other things. Uh, I was luckily brought up by people who were very open in that regards. Whereas I can imagine some other people went and had that experience and totally wrong for them. It's like, oh, I'm not speaking. Food rescue driving for kibosh, you know, okay. do the food, and, and um, uh, for a couple of hours in the mornings, and so it's been interesting uh, seeing the kind of the back of house of supermarkets and all of the food that they're throwing out. And and yesterday I I witnessed some quite surprising sort of racism, which was because um, I'm sort of I move in a certain bubble and I. I like to think that we're quite a progressive country, and I, I guess in many ways we are, but there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, and, and one of the guys was ranting to his colleague about what's happening in the States with the protests and, and, and how uh, if you don't resist and you don't run, you don't get shot. Simple as that, you know, and, and, and really right. trying to... And this, this poor guy was on the receiving end saying, oh, but what about the guy who was knelt on? Right. He goes, oh, well, he was res resisting initially. So, and just, and I thought, wow, I feel like saying something. Of course I didn't, but um, it's, people are angry. Like, yeah. even in New Zealand, even. And people are justifying and I was, the wrong things chat as to well. This guy. Like he was on my list of people to buy coffee for. I don't know if he's on the list anymore. Mm. <laughs> but it was. Well, that's good that we're having these confusing experiences. Well, maybe not confusing, but experiences that make us go, hmm, no, that's not how we should be approaching this, you know? And diversity is just a fact of life. It should be embraced. It's great. Well, I, I think this idea that, well, we've done something now, so we're good, that's that's the worst place to be, right? Like, what, like tick a box? Yeah, you know, like. yeah. And that's what people are angry about is like, you've been saying that for a long time. I mean, nothing meaningful has been done. So like a, a friend of mine, someone that I know from the States sent me a message about like, well, at least you're in New Zealand. And it seems like New Zealand has totally figured it out. And I kind of felt like, yeah, this is a really special place. And people are, people are generally, like you say, very progressive. But also I don't want American, like my friends and family to displace a certain fantasy onto New Zealand. Like New Zealand has its own dark history mm -hmm. and its own everyday struggles. And so like, that's where we're all at. Like we're still trying to do better. We're still dealing with the legacy of colonialism. And um, the idea of like having to decolonize is like very mm -hmm. omnipresent. And it's part of a lot of discussions at Victoria, of course, like that's what universities are supposed to do is have mm -hmm. these discussions. But um, it's not perfect, it's imperfect. Mm -hmm. And we should, we should always keep that in mind um, because otherwise we're just complacent. I'm just thinking about your experiences in the film industry as well and that diversity conversation, which I'm sure you've been parts of and advocated for. <laughs> Having it all the time. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's just, the the sad thing is, is not that those conversations happen, it's that, that we haven't got over them from a perspective that they need to happen. They still need to happen. That's the sad bit. It's just like, of I mean, you, you, you actually read my tweets, which I feel oh, like right. no one does. <laughs> just like, randomly <laughs> ranting into the, you know. Into the ether, right? Yeah. You just hope someone is listening. <laughs> I'm just going to say this over and over again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
But do, well, you're obviously here in Wellington. You're here in New Zealand, so you're like you say in a space that the safest. But we, I think, I'm a you know I'm a citizen now, so I can say we, even though I do feel like I'm an immigrant at times. I also feel that where I'm from, I have a very different experience. Like where we're in, in the UK, I still have issues when I travel globally and I meet certain types of people from the UK. And I have this problem with class. Because mm. class is a bigger thing than race in the UK, I think, mm. just from my own experience. Other mm. people will say it differently. But in the, in the US, definitely race is the big thing versus class. But it turns out it's both things in America. Like right. America has always tried to behave as if we're beyond class, mm. but in fact, it's very classist. And you can't separate race from class anymore. Right. But I see, I know what mm. you're saying. Like, I think the way in which America and the UK understand their relationship to race and class mm. is quite different. It's kind of the inverse, right? It's kind of maybe it's overtly racist in America, but they think they're overclass, but it's still there. Whereas in it's the UK, classist. it's kind of, yeah, totally classist, <laughs> but it's kind of underlying racist maybe yeah, as well. So yeah. it's like, yeah, it's an odd thing. But coming to New Zealand, I feel it's such a, a much more open and liberal society. But Gabe is the only one here who's grown up in. And that's why I was going to bring yeah, the, the local in. <laughs> saying, are we talking and you're going, well, I don't recognize any of that. Or are you going, yeah. Well, I was actually, it, it brought to mind a, um, a talk that I saw, Orlando Botton, the um, philosopher, I love him. Um, yeah, he he talked on, on that subject of class and, and, and almost an argument for having the class system, okay. uh, which is a whole conversation. But, um, you know, basically we live in a meritocracy. So we're told from a young age that from the time that we're very small, if you have a dream and you work hard, then you can be whatever you want. And you can be uh, Steve Jobs or, you know, and, and so it's not realistic. Not everybody can be Steve Jobs. So then it creates anxiety between, there's an anxiety gap between where we are now, if, we're, if we truly believe that to be true, and where our potential is. And if we don't reach that, then we feel like we're a failure. So his argument, and I'm, I'm not saying I agree with this, but his argument was that with the class system, it's not like that at all. You're the baker's son, you marry the cobbler's daughter. And, right. you know, and that's Your cool, right? And you see the dukes <laughs> and everybody else around, mm. and it just seems kind of odd, but there's no, there's no expectation there. There's no, mm. that we don't need to strive. It's just a different world and that's okay. Uh, and it's a little bit absurd at times and don't really understand it, but that's fine because I've got my happy life here. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what I was thinking yeah. about. Uh, it was an interesting point of view yeah. on the class system and the you, meritocracy. And I think, yes. I was just going to ask you, do you think that New Zealand and, our, and the culture here and the history as well, because we can't get away from some of the sad bits of it, as well as some of the really amazing thing, like one of the first countries to give women the vote and all these other things. What is the potential of New Zealand helping lead the world out of this kind of quite ugly saga that we find ourselves in, in many nations? 
the, the, do the I TV have to really have like an that? amazing answer to speak yeah, for New Zealand right now? Yeah, yeah. as the representative <laughs> Kiwi around this table, <laughs> speak for every Kiwi. Come on, dude. <laughs> Sorry, what was the question? <laughs> well, I, I was, I, I'm thinking out loud. It's yeah, not a question yeah, to you. It's a yeah. question to the table in a yeah. sense of the potential of this country to punch way above its weight has always been there and inherent in terms of we're at the bottom of the earth and look at what we're doing in the film industry or with our coffee and stuff like that. But in a social context, in a cultural context, can we lead the world out of something? I was... I don't know. I don't know if you, you two are fans of David Chappelle. I know he can be yes. an acquired taste. Fantastic. I really... I think he's pretty amazing, but I was he watching. He likes to wear a jump jumpsuit. Of he does like to wear a jumpsuit. Yeah. I think I see influences <laughs> there. <laughs> but I watched his recent 824, which was just like a, a piece that he put up very raw. He did it himself. It's on YouTube, where he wanted to talk about George Floyd, right. and he, like one of the messages was that um, he got some heat from CNN anchor about being a celebrity and what, what, what are you doing? You're not saying anything. Celebrities need to say something. And he's like, it's not about me. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's about us really. Like we're too old in some ways. Like it's the young generation that has their say right now. And they have like really good ideas. They see the way forward. They know what they want. And I think they're, they want the right thing. Our job is to support them and to amplify their voices. Get out of the way. Yeah, in some ways get out of the way or facilitate whatever it is, um, but not to uh, detract or to distract or to put up barriers. Mm. Um, so like, you know, I don't know that, I, I don't think we have an answer for this question, like can New Zealand lead the way? I don't know if anyone can lead the way, like, but I think a generation, on a generational level, the young folks can lead the way and we could help. I think that New Zealand is held up as, at times, as an example. I think there's the world uh, indigenous forums that are held uh, in different parts of the world mm. every year. And uh, although we're not perfect, it it is held up as a, as an example uh, in that way, um, which which is good. And, and and then on the other hand, you know, Australia is sort of held up as the example of how it shouldn't have gone as well. So even though we're so close, it's just so very different. I think that we've done, I don't want to comment on it too, too much because no, I, I don't get, know enough about it, but um, I, I, I'd like to think that we can be an example yeah. for the rest of the world in, 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 in certain areas. Um, I love that they much, how much today my kids are learning and they, 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 their um, fluence, all the two eldest ones are because they went to Kohanga uh, and it's fully immersive and they're teaching me now at four or five and and that's that's inspiring for me and because we're such a new country we don't have a lot of sort of ancient culture to sort of build our own identity so by embracing Maori culture it is is a way that well, it's 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 a it's it's a gift. I mean, it's such a gift, and I think that um, I'm really, as a Kiwi, getting back to what you're asking, I'm, I'm really proud of what I see happening in that space uh, around the 
integration and, and having kids that are bilingual and yeah. You know, my kids are probably the, the whitest kids at Kohanga there, but, yeah. <laughs> but they love it. They absolutely love it. And there's a lot of music and yeah, it's really good. And a perfect really illustration good. of kind of, yeah, they might be the whitest kids, but they're embracing the language and the culture and everything else. Mm. And that's that kind of fluidity that we all need at the moment. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that uh, Victoria University does, and I don't know if other universities in New Zealand have this as a... Um, as a driving factor, but it's uh, integrating the Treaty of Waitangi across all the curriculums. Mm -hmm. And when I first came to Vic, I didn't really understand what that meant from a visual effects perspective. I kind of thought, well, I don't really understand how technology relates to this document mm -hmm. because I know so little to begin with. Um, but now I realize it has everything to do with it. I, I realized that I was part of this system that didn't even understand that visual effects had been colonized, for example. What that means, how you talk about it, what does it mean to decolonize something? Every discipline needs to think about this in a meaningful way. And also, like, as an opportunity, like, we're teaching art in New Zealand. Like, there's this amazing tradition. We need to, we need to use it. Like, that's what makes us special. That's why you come here and you learn to do art, um, at least in the university context, as opposed to other places. So that has been like really exciting for me to, to learn more about that and to keep trying to understand it better. And that's really different than the experience in higher education in America. Like there is, n I don't know of any university in America that is like, how do you decolonize a subject and let's make it a mandate for everyone to like reread these documents that have like set up the colonial mindset or disentangled it in America like I can't imagine that when that's going to happen it's like I, I like the fact they don't have Maori week here <laughs> like black history week or something it's like no it's into much more integrated uh, and where I'm from having a culture that's very visible you know because it's a bilingual nation where I'm from in Wales every sign is both in English and Welsh it's a reminder of some historical legacy that we are have a, a deep history. And I like that we see that on display here and it's integrated, like you say. And it's always brought up. I like it. Even though you might not understand it deeply, people give you permission to learn it and encourage you. Yeah, and that's, I think, the responsibility. Like, uh, you, we have to take it on ourselves. Yeah. Like, there's no straight, direct answer. And the point is, you have to engage. I'm aware of time and giving you, you know, space and time to leave in, in the right proper time. Uh, is there anything we haven't covered that you wanted to kind of cover off? Because we covered a hell of a lot. We attempted we to solve a lot of problems. Yeah, I think this, you know, the next kind of meeting of the UN, just get us in. We'll yeah, yeah, we've got it covered. Got some chocolate, yeah. Yeah, yeah. kind of, got this, yeah. what's next? Well, poverty, right, slap it on the table, we'll take it on. But thank you. Yeah, that was kind of, we'll, we'll cut there then, in terms of just, we'll find a natural end point. Well, John or Will, he's much more clever than me. And uh, I really want to thank you for your time today, people. That was so lovely just to spend time with you, but also just to allow you to learn from each other and me learn so much about you guys. So thank you. Thank you. This that was great. an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah. Thanks, thanks, for for thanks for inviting me to, to talk. Great. Yeah, yeah, thanks for trusting me um, to it do was, this. Yeah, I was very honored to be invited and to meet you, Gabe. Like, this was super cool. Um, 
to learn okay. about you and your storytelling and what you're doing with your company. I'm just really, I'm just in awe. Like it's amazing. Oh, the feelings are mutual. I don't know a lot about the world you work in, but it's so fantastic. And I'm so excited about seeing this VR experience. <laughs> yeah, I'm let's... a little bit of a sort of experience junkie like that. Like yeah, I, well, you are. It sounds like when you were talking about it, I thought, well, that's something that I've not experienced. I must find a way to, you know, I'll, I'll patiently wait to, for when it comes out or... That was Creative Welly, episode three. Thank you again for giving us your ears and your brain, probably. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Please subscribe to creativewelly.com for future episodes. Again, this was brought to you by me, DK, at justadanak.com, produced by John over at Empire Films and hosted by Alex over in X Equals. We'll see you in the next fortnight. And until then, keep having those courageous conversations.